before I pray, uh, do not, I can't say for sure, but uh, those of you who read some news, uh, with, uh, news that uh, what he, uh, may have had, that there seems to be, they use the word revival, taking on in some university campuses now. And when that came to my notice, I said, well, who knows? We've been praying for years and years and years. Maybe the Lord is answering. I don't know yet. Who we'll watch and see? Let's pray. I'm most eternal and everlasting Father, King of Kings, Lord of Lords, majestic, awesome God, powerful, loving, caring. No one like you in heaven and earth. You are so unique in everything about you. We thank you for your faithfulness. Thank you for your power. Thank you for what you've been doing around this area in terms of weather that you continuously show us your goodness. We are grateful. We have gathered this morning, Heavenly Father, in obedience to your instruction that we should do so, especially as we see the evil days draw near, and we know we are in tumultuous times, but underneath are the everlasting arms that sustain us. So we can come to you with absolute confidence that you're hearing us because we have a high priest, the Lord Jesus Christ, who pleads on our behalf. So, Heavenly Father, as we have gathered to study a portion of your word, then we pray that the Holy Spirit, the perfect communicator, will open our minds, grant us the ability to perceive what you have for us this morning. This is our request in Christ's name. Amen. We are still continuing with 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 23 through chapter 11, verse 1. But this time I'm beginning at verse 32 of the 10th chapter. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 32 reads, Do not cause anyone to stumble, whether Jews, Greeks, or the church of God, even as I try to please everybody in every way. For I am not seeking my own good, but the good of many, so that they may be saved. Follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. Now the message of 1 Corinthians 10 verses 23 through chapter 11 verse 1 that we have been considering is that you should use your freedom in Christ in such a way to advance the spiritual needs of others. Now we say that, the, that we will expand the Message by focusing on three responsibilities that you have as a believer pertaining to the concept of freedom that you have in Christ. Given in the passage that we're starting. So, we have given the first one, if you recall, which is that you should understand that not everything that you have right to do helps others spiritually, but you are required to seek the good of others. The second is that you should not, uh, I mean that you should understand that your use of your freedom is not absolute. So you need to adjust its application. Now this second responsibility, we stated demands you should know when to use your freedom in Christ and when not to use it. In our last study, our focus was on the third reason a believer should not Use personal freedom in situations where there is a challenge to the Christian faith. Which reason we say is that 
God's glory supersedes any human freedom in Christ. And we spent quite a bit of time in that study last week. So we proceed now to consider the third responsibility that you as a believer have regarding the message of this passage. A third responsibility you have regarding the message of this passage that we are considering is that you should follow Apostle Paul's example of use of freedom that he patterned after that of Jesus Christ. Now this responsibility implies that a believer should be concerned with the spiritual welfare of others rather than one's freedom in Christ. Thus, before the apostle issues the command on which this third responsibility is based, he issued a command in verse 32. That is one of the ways a believer should do everything to the glory of God. Now this command requires being concerned about the spiritual welfare of others as we read again in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 verse 32. It says, do not cause anyone to stumble whether Jews, Greeks, or the church of God. Now the word uh, not used in the NIV does not really appear in the Greek text. Although, that's a good way to read the Greek. Or the command that we have in the verse. Nonetheless, the word not does not appear in the Greek. This is because literally, the Greek reads this way. It's a, it reads this way. Be inoffensive. Be inoffensive. Both to Jews and to Greeks, and to the church of God. Be inoffensive. Now the instruction given in verse 32 is one that the Holy Spirit expects believers to practice. So to say, in other words, the Holy Spirit expects believers to do what is instructed repeatedly so that it can become a habit in the spiritual life of a believer. Now this is because Apostle Paul used a present tense in the Greek to issue the command. Now the present tense used in our verse is either uh, to express that an action should continue so that the sense is really to make it one's habit. Or it could be understood in the sense of repeated action leading to the sense of doing something again and again and again. Now, either way, the apostle wants believers to ensure they repeat the command and not just something they do once. The thing to be repeated, again in the NIV, he said, do not cause anyone to stumble. Or again, literally, reads, be inoffensive. Be inoffensive. Now, this is because the expression... Do not cause of the NIV is really translated from a Greek verb that also means to be. In that, our Greek word emphasizes that of being what one was not before. Now that aside, our Greek word has several meanings. For example, it may mean 
to come into a certain uh, state or to possess certain characteristics. So it may mean something like to become, as Apostle Paul used it to indicate that he possessed temporarily characteristics of others or acted in some respect to others to help them spiritually as we read in 1 Corinthians chapter 9 verse 20. 1 Corinthians chapter 9 verse 20. 1 Corinthians chapter 9 verse 20 reads, To the Jews I became like a Jew, to win the Jews. To those under the law I became like one under the law, though I myself am not under the law so as to win those under the law. Now the word also may mean to experience a change in nature and so indicates entry into a new condition. Hence, the Greek word may mean to become something as the Apostle Paul used it to indicate that he became a messenger of the gospel of Jesus Christ in Colossians chapter 1 verse 23. Colossians chapter 1 verse 23. Colossians chapter 1 verse 23. It reads, If you continue in your faith, establish and firm, not move from the hope held out in the gospel, this is the gospel that you have heard, and that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven, of which I, Paul, have become a servant. That word become is a Greek word. Now in our passage of 1 Corinthians 10 verse 32, the word is used in the sense of to become, that is, to assume a certain state. To assume a certain state. Now the state the believer is to assume is that of being inoffensive to anyone, although the NIV used the expression do not cause anyone to stumble. Now the rendering of the NIV gives the impression though that a second verb is used in the Greek because of that verbal phrase. Look at that phrase to stumble, to stumble. That will give you an idea that a verb is used. Well this is not really the case. The Verbal phrase to stumble is how the translators of the NIV rendered a Greek adjective, a Greek adjective that pertains to being without fault because of not giving offense. Hence means something like blameless or undamaged. Now as it is usually to express what Apostle Paul desires to happen to the uh, Philippians, when God grants them insight in spiritual matters, as we read in Philippians chapter 1, verse 10. Philippians Philippians chapter 1, verse 10. 
It is so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless. Blameless. And that word is the same word uh, that the NIV rendered into a verb to stumble. Actually, the Greek word aproscopos. It means really uh, to give offense. So the word may, may pertain then to not causing offense, and so means simply giving no offense. As an adjective, not a verb. Now it is in the sense of not giving offense or not causing stumbling. That is, not uh, promoting a person's sinning by one's actions or lifestyle that the word is used in 1 Corinthians 10 verse 32. Thus, majority of our English versions Instead of the command, do not cause anyone to stumble of the NIV, they translated it this way. Do not give offense. Do not give offense. That's how majority of our English versions translated the Greek. So you see, do not give offense. Now both translations are saying essentially the same thing. Since the concern of the apostle is to ensure that someone does not sin or fails to believe God's word. Now it is important to be clear regarding what the command not to give offense or not to cause someone to stumble does mean. Let's be very clear what it means. Well we begin with what it doesn't mean. It does not mean that one should not speak the truth because of fear of offending someone or of causing someone to sin in, uh, in the sense that the person could become hateful because of what one has said. In other words, you know, if you said whatever it is is true, this person will hate you and you say, I don't want him to sin. And therefore I'm going to say it. That would be wrong. That's not, what it, that's not what we're looking at. So we, see, we are living in a world where people do not want to tell the truth. That's the world we live in now. Because people don't want to tell the truth because they are afraid of offending someone. And so people acquiesce to what is wrong by saying nothing. You see something that is wrong, and you keep your mouth shut, you are part of whatever it is. You have a quest to it. So you are part of it. But that's the world in which we live. People are, no, don't talk about that. I don't want to offend this person. That's not what Christ is telling us. That's not what the Holy Spirit is commanding us through the Apostle Paul. Again, this is not what that instruction means that we are considering. Now, so let me illustrate to you that about the point I'm making, with two incidents during the earthly ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. So you can see that giving, not giving offense or not causing somebody to stop doesn't mean don't tell the truth. Or don't tell them what they don't want to hear because they're going to hate you. Well, the Jewish religious leaders were concerned that Jesus' disciples were not in their own... Uh, understanding, maintaining 
the traditions of their elders. However, the Lord Jesus rebuked them for they are not obeying God's command because they misapplied their traditions. So Jesus' correction caused the Jewish religious leaders to be offended. As we read in Matthew chapter 15 verses 1 through 12. Matthew, hold on to Matthew though. Matthew chapter 15, verses 1 through 2. It is, then some Pharisees and teachers of the law came to Jesus from Jerusalem and asked, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? They don't wash their hands before they eat. Jesus replied, And why do you break the command of God for the sake of your tradition? For God said, Honor your father and mother, and anyone who curses his father or mother must be put to death. But you say that if a man says to his father or mother, Whatever help you might otherwise have received from me, is a gift devoted to God. He is not to honor his father with it. Thus, you nullify the word of God for the sake of your tradition. See, here what our Lord is trying to uh, explain to us is, you read the, the Ten Commandments, say, honor your father and your mother. Now, here's the question. Is there a time your mother or your father ceases to be your mother or your father? Stronger than this planet. So, how are you going to honor them? Because see, honoring uh, parents consists of, first of all, always being obedient to their instruction. Always. Now, now that you are an adult, on your own, you can't obey them because you are no longer under the uh, umbrella of their homes. So how do you honor them? The way you do that? By taking care of them. That's how you honor your parents. After you have left home. But while you are at home, it means to give complete obedience to them. That's how you do that. But once you leave home as an adult, it now means take care of them. That's how you honor them. So that's what Christ is saying. You'll find a fanciful way of circumventing that. Instead of helping your parents... You say, well, this, thing, uh, this money I have, or whatever, it is devoted to God. Therefore, you bypass what you're supposed to do. Well, verse 7 says, this is, it says, you hypocrites. Isaiah was right when he professed about you. These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are but rules taught by men. Jesus called the crowd to him and said, Listen and understand. What goes into a man's mouth does not make him unclean. But what comes out of his mouth, that is what makes him unclean. In other words, what you and I say, that's what makes us unclean. Verse 2 said, Then disciples came to him and asked, do you know 
That the Pharisees were offended when they had this. That's what we're looking at. They were offended because Jesus Christ told the truth of what they are doing and criticizes. They became offended. Well, the Lord Jesus was not concerned that the Pharisees were offended because of what he told the truth. In fact, he doubled down by his response in that he attacked them of not being true spiritual leaders from God and so that they will be judged. That is what we have. Look at verses 13 and 14. That Matthew 15 verse, verse 13 reads. He replied, Every plant that my heavenly father has not planted will be pulled all by the roots. Leave them. They are blind guys. as the religious leaders. If a blind man leaves a blind man, both will fall into a pit. So you see, Jesus didn't back down. And that's one of those things that we all need to learn. And I'm going to emphasize how you do it in one way, but we all should learn not to back down from truth because of people going to be offended. You're not doing any, I mean, in fact, you're, you're not honoring the Lord if you back down because you're afraid you're going to offend somebody and so you keep your mouth shut and walk away. And you know what the truth is? is that you should speak up and you didn't. Now another occasion that the Lord Jesus indicates that not giving offense to people does not mean withholding the truth was when he thought that he is the bread of life. And only if a person believes in him would the individual have eternal life. Of course, he did this using metaphors of eating his flesh and drinking his blood. In John chapter 6, verses 53 through 58. John chapter 6, verses 53 through 58. It is, Jesus said to them, I tell you the truth. Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. And I will raise him up at the last day. For my flesh is real food and my blood is real drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me and I in him. Just as the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so the one who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Your forefathers ate manna and died. But he who feeds on this bread will live forever. The bread of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, see, the Lord Jesus knew that that offended people. Once he said that, they were offended. Of course, they didn't really catch what he was telling them. He's not saying, come back, get a bath on my body. That wasn't what he was telling them. He said, well, telling them, you have to believe in me, and you have life. So the Lord Jesus recognized that not only that the 
uh, that the many Jews who had this took his teaching as hard to swallow. So, did his disciples. Hence, he asked his disciples if they were also offended. As we read, still in that John 6, look at verses 60 through 62. 60 through 62. It is on it. Many of his disciples said, this is a hard teaching. Now that's what, you know, if you're really paying attention, in many, many cases, when we study things here, it's a hard teaching. Really. Unless you're faking it. <laughs> but if you're being honest, most of, some of the things we study, most of them are really hard teaching. He says, this is a hard teaching. Who can accept it? Aware that his disciples were grumbling about this, Jesus said to them, Does this offend you? What if you see the Son of Man ascend to where he was before? So Jesus, as the God-man, knew how those who had him would respond or would react. But that did not keep him from teaching the truth. Thus he conveyed that the teaching Truth or teaching truth is not what it means then to give offense because he never sinned. So, if, if him telling the truth, which he did, was something bad, then he will have sinned, but he never sinned. So, he conveyed to us that teaching the truth is not what it means to give offense. I feel though that many of us pastors of local churches are ignorant of this truth. Or those who are not ignorant are afraid to stand on God's word. Now I say this because there are many of us pastors who will not teach the truth for the fear of offending those in our congregations. They won't tell the truth. They skim around it. Now when we fail to teach the truth though, we should realize that that is not what the Holy Spirit says we should not do through Apostle Paul in the command of 1 Corinthians 10 verse 32 that we are studying. Again, that command says, do not cause anyone to stumble or really, as I give other translation, do not give offense. So we have considered then what a command could not mean. So, what is it then that the Holy Spirit uh, tells us not to do through Apostle Paul? What is it? Now, the command is that we should be careful not to do or say anything that will cause another person to sin or to falter in the individual's faith. That's what he's talking about. That you do not do anything that will cause another believer to sin. Or any other human being for that matter. To sin. Or to cause someone to falter in the faith. So obedience to this command requires several actions from us believers. If you're going to do what we just explained. That you should ensure that you don't do something that will cause another believer or any other person to sin. Or that you don't want them to falter in their faith. Then there are certain things that we need to uh, look at. 
of actions that we as believers could take. First, you should take every step then to avoid anything that will lead you or any other believer to sin. In other words, you be thoughtful. I know that for most time when we're in the battlefield, we don't think. I mean, we just we go. And as soon as we go, we fail. Because we're not thinking. That's just the way it is. That's, that tells us we're not yet there. That tells us we're not yet perfect. Otherwise, we will not fail. So, we all know, or we should all know as believers, that yes, many times in the battlefield, when we're hit, some of us, very few will quickly think to apply whatever it is that they learn. But for the majority of us, we will not until we fail flat on our face. And then we realize, oh man, how did I do that? Because the idea that you recognize it is, tells you that you're spiritually healthy anyway. Otherwise, you would have been going in without even knowing that you've messed up. But the fact you realize that means you are really in a, a vibrant state in your spiritual life. Anyway, the, the importance of this step, though, is underscored by the instruction of Jesus Christ recorded for us in Matthew chapter 18, verses 8 and 9. Matthew chapter 18, verses 8 through 9. It is, if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life maimed or crippled than to have two hands or two feet and be thrown into eternal fire. And if your eyes causes you to sin, Gut it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into the fire of hell. I mean, immediately you can tell this is it's not the Lord is not advocating literal amputation of body parts. I mean, you can say, because when you say, if your eye causes you to, just God will help us see what I'm talking. When he says, if your eye causes you, if your eye causes you to sin, I mean, that will imply that you close one eye and you're using only one eye. Right? But that's the way of saying, yeah, you know, you're sin. But then, when he wants to say the remedy, he says, gorge it out and go in with one eye. We don't, we see with two eyes unless something is wrong with us. He didn't say cut off the both eyes. So in a way, he's just trying to say, I am trying to tell you in a very dramatic way the importance of not causing another person to sin. So what we say is that the Lord simply wants us to take drastic steps. I mean, amputation of the body part or gouging out the eye, that's something drastic. So all he's trying to tell us is take drastic steps that are necessary 
to ensure that we do not fail. Drastic stress means we are not going to do things people like. You're going to be careful that when you do things that you do not sin, even though people will not like it. So that is what he was actually conveying to us here. The drastic steps that we need to take in order to ensure the seriousness of what he has taught to us. Now believers are taking serious steps to avoid any temptation or sin. Or being the source of temptation to others. In other words, we have to be careful as believers that we are not the one that through our action or what we say cause another believer to sin. That's what our Lord is really emphasizing. Be, be very, very, very thoughtful. Now again, like I say, in battlefield, most of us don't think about it. If we think and realize, oh, how is this thing I'm going to say cause another believer to react? Now, that means you're looking, is this what I'm saying? Is it truth? If it's not truth, then I better not say it. But if it's truth, I will say it, but we'll find how we do it anyway later on. So that's what the Lord is concerned with here. Now, second thing that you should do is you should be particularly sensitive to new or immature Christians. Be particularly sensitive to new or immature Christians. You should be careful what you say or do around such individuals. Recognizing that such individuals are not yet grounded in truth. And so are more prone to sin and to stumble. So if you know those who are still baby Christians or those who just got saved, just be careful around them. Be careful what you say. Even sometimes when they go astray, you have to be very patient with them. You don't call them off immediately because they don't really yet know. You need to help them. So this is one thing that as believers we all need to be concerned with. How do you help a young believer so that they uh, do not go astray? The third thing though, based on what the Holy Spirit has communicated through Apostle Paul in this chapters in chapters eight through ten of this first Corinthians, you should be willing to give up your freedom so as not to give offense to another believer. So you don't give offense to another believer. Now Christianity requires that we think about others and how to help them spiritually than that of trying to please self. Now I know most of them keep saying it. I don't know how many of us actually think about it. Are you a self-centered person? Do you really think whether you are self-centered? That's something you have to think. Are you self-centered? Because what we're saying is Christianity forbids that. 
You can be self-centered and may not even know that you are. Because all you think about is yourself and no other person. You're not thinking about, how is this going to affect the other person? You just, oh, let me get it, whatever it is, I just got to do it. That's what we're dealing with. Now, of course, as we have uh, previously considered, this then means that there are certain things that we may have to give up, not because they are sinful, but because they will cause trouble for a young believer or a believer not yet taught the word of God. Now remember what I say, is is the thing that we're talking about cannot be a sin. It has to be something that you have the right to do. You can do it. There's nothing simple about it. But because of somebody else, you, you pass. That's what we're dealing with. And uh, many, many times I keep reminding us uh, in light of um, conversation I had with somebody from overseas yesterday or so. I keep reminding the person. I say, here's the thing. Once you get saved, that's dead settled. That's not the issue anymore. The issue now is where are you going to be in heaven? That's the issue. That's what we're all struggling for if you don't know that. If you have believed in Christ, that's guaranteed you'll be in heaven. But will you go into heaven as a, you know, just a way of illustrating, take the back seat or you take the front seat? Are you going to be in heaven and be a five-star general? Are you going to be a private? That's what we're now all struggling with. If you don't, if you don't really realize that, that's what it is. More than anything, of course, uh, uh, part of it is you get a foretaste of that right here on this planet. Because if you're going to be a five-star general in heaven, it starts being reflected here. Because your life will be such meaningful life, so challenging, so thrilling at the same time. Full of trials and temptation, no doubt. But it will be a life that you are in complete peace. While on this planet. Regardless of what's going on in your body. That will start giving you an indication. Yeah, you're going to be highly placed in heaven. So if you, if you say, well, I, I'll wait until you get there. No, you, you, you can almost be sure that you get there, you're going to be a private. Instead of a five-star general for to say Anyway, so the thing is that you have to know that there are things that we're dealing with that must not be sinful, that you give up to help other believers or not to cause uh, another believer to sin. We should, of course, be concerned about the conscience of weak believers, and so we forgo certain things that are in themselves not sinful, they may cause problems for the conscience of a weak believer. Now the example that I have used previously has been that of the use of alcoholic beverages. But let me add another example that may not, uh, probably most appropriate in our area. And I've used this in the past, and I'm just going to repeat the same thing, so you get... It, uh, you get my uh, 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 application here. 
Now this concerns what one does on Sundays. Now you know that uh, that as in any other day, you could do whatever you want to do on Sunday so long as it does not keep you from going to church. Because that's the first duty in that respect. But if you lived in areas where Christians make an issue concerning the activities carried out on this day, Sunday, then by all means, do not carry out those activities that might offend them. Although you are not doing something sinful, now you resist. A good example. You've been so busy Monday through Saturday, you didn't have any other tomorrow your yard. So you do it on Sunday. Well, there may be people who say, hmm, I thought he's a Christian. He's mowing his yard on a Sunday. Now, are you wrong? Not completely. I'm going to, I know why he's completely. You're not really wrong. But there's something else that you need to consider. Well, if you carried out that activity, if, you, if that may cause some other Christians who do not yet understand the way you understand to criticize you. And that means you cause them to sin. Because you did that. Now that will be a way that you will be wrong. Although what you did is not sinful in and of itself. So, you forgo doing such a thing in order not to cause a fellow believer to get into the sin of criticism of you or to even cause an unbeliever to say, Oh, I thought they are Christian. They don't move yet on Sunday. Maybe he's really just not a Christian. And he also be going wrong. Now, I'm going to forgo that though. But the example I'm using, there's another part to it. Because I always like to use that. And that is this. Although, in a sense, we can say you have not sinned. But there's a sense that you have not obeyed a principle. God has given all of us this principle. One day after seven days rest the body. That's a principle. I mean it was a law for Israel. The principle still goes applies today. It's not a law for us. It's a principle that God has given for our blessing. So if you decide you don't want to rest in one day a week, yeah, just keep going. You're going to pay the piper. As they say, right? Later in this life, it's going to come back to you. So the God who told you, work hard as you can, six days a week, and one day, take a rest. He created your body. He is the perfect designer. He knows why he said that. So if you decide, say, oh, I don't care, well, that's fine. That's not going to send you to hell, for sure. We know that. That's not going to get you to hell. But what he does, it's going to make your body 
suffer on this planet. Because there's a reason he did that. So anyway, you can see what we're saying. that Yes, there's nothing wrong with Mohia Christ. But because of the reasons I've given, let it go. And it's so the command of 1 Corinthians 10 verse 32. Do not cause anyone to stumble or do not give offense as the majority of our English versions that we have been considering is the one then that we should obey for the benefit of everyone on this planet, not only just believers. That is what I said. You may say, well, I, I wouldn't do, I wouldn't move my head because of my neighbors who are uh, believers who go to other church and maybe they not thought this, I'll let it alone. I say, yeah, that's fine. But you also think about, even if they weren't, yeah, uh, those who go to other church, if they are unbelievers, because at least for now, I, don't, I know things are changing rapidly in this, in this country. I can always say, because I, I'm very uh, humorous about it in my judgment, I always claim Mississippi as my root. And so, and I told you one time I, I was in the university and I was, somebody said they're from Mississippi. And I, I took a liking to the student and, uh, and one day in class something happened. I said, well, I'm from Mississippi. They said, no, Dr. O, you're not from Mississippi. The people from Mississippi don't talk like you talk. I said, yeah, but I'm from Mississippi. Anyway, so my point was, that's my root. That's where I began. And because that is my root, I have seen changes in these 48 years plus that I've been in this country. So that what used to be a big thing is no longer today. Now, not many people today may, maybe they, they may not care too much about whether you mow your land on Sunday, but at least when I got here, I know, I, I, I know for sure. If you did that, they wouldn't think they would question your Christianity. But, you know, things are changing. Anyway, the Holy Spirit through Apostle Paul tells us that the principle we are covering is not only to be applied to Christians. It should be applied to all human beings. That's what we're saying. It's not just that you don't cause a fellow believer to stumble or to give an offense to a fellow believer, but to every human being. Now, the way we know these things is by looking at the text where we're studying. Now, the Holy Spirit, through Apostle Paul, divided humanity into three categories at the time of this epistle that for us today will mean that humans, of course, are divided into two major categories of believers and unbelievers for us today. Now, since the first two categories the apostle used should today be grouped as one when it comes to faith in Christ. Nonetheless, the apostle grouped the humanity of the ancient world into three categories. Therefore, the Holy Spirit through apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10 verse 32, look at what he says, he says, whether Jews, Greeks, or the church of God. Literally, the Greek really reads something like this, both to Jews and to Greeks and to the church of God. Now the first category of humanity 
in the ancient world is known as the Jews. That's the first category. Now the word Jews requires we really review what we have studied in the past about who is a Jew. Because here is the thing I, I know uh, we study quite a bit and sometimes it's necessary to continue reviewing. And I know what I'm talking about because every now and then somebody will ask me the same question I know I've taught here. I said, mm, okay. That reminds me of the importance of going back and repeating, repeating because we all uh, fail to return certain things that are useful. But we, we may return things that are not, but ones that are useful, very difficult. Anyway, so the word Jew, we need to review what that really means. Now, the word Jew is translated from a Greek word that, although strictly means persons belonging to Judea, that is, a Judean, a Judean. But it has been used in different ways depending on the period of history of Israel in view. Now, prior to exile, the term Jew was used to describe Judeans, as we can gather from some passages of the Old Testament scripture. The term was used to describe Judeans in 2 Kings chapter 16, verse 6. 2 Kings chapter 16 verse 6 2 Kings chapter 16 verse 6 reads At that time Rezin king of Aram covered Elat for Aram by driving out the men of Judah Edomites then moved to Elat and have lived there to this day now the phrase the men of Judah is the way the translators of the NIV rendered a Hebrew word Yehudi that means Judean or Jew Yehudi, Judean or Jew. Now, Prophet Jeremiah used the same term in the sense of Judeans in Jeremiah chapter 32, verse 12. Jeremiah chapter 32. Verse 12. And hold on to Jeremiah once you get Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter 32, verse 12 reads And I gave this deed to Baruch, son of Neriah, the son of Mahseer, in the presence of my cousin. Hanan Mel, and of the witnesses who have signed the deed, and of all that were the Jews sitting in the courtyard of the yard. Now they were in Jerusalem, south of Judeans. So uh, Prophet Jeremiah also used 
the word, the uh, Hebrew word to, the, uh, to actually describe all Hebrews prior to the exile. As we can gather from Jeremiah chapter 34, verse 9. Jeremiah chapter 34, verse 9. It is, everyone was to free his Hebrew slaves, both male and female, not one was to hold a fellow Jew in bondage. So here you see, He's describing Hebrews with the word Jew. So this usage of the time to describe all uh, Hebrews was applicable also in the time of exile. For example, Mordecai from the tribe of Benjamin was described as a Jew in Esther chapter 2 verse 5. Esther Esther chapter 2 and hold on once you get to Esther the book of Esther chapter 2 verse 5 and hold on to it because I'm going to pick another uh, passage from that it reads now then there was in the citadel of Susa a Jew of the tribe of Benjamin, named Mordecai, son of Jair, the son of Shemer, the son of Kish. Of course, it would seem that the term was, because you see, it's used here, a Benjamite, but then the Hebrew word Yehudi is used for a Judean. But here it's used for a Benjamite. Now, so, it would seem that the term really was used to describe the other ten tribes who were scattered all over the vast kingdom of King Xerxes since the attempt to exterminate the Jews was one that was, was widespread throughout the kingdom of Xerxes. Now during the period of exile, the term then was applied to even some Gentiles who aligned themselves with the Jews. As we read in Esther chapter 8 verse 17. Esther chapter 8 verse 17. It is in every province and in every city where the edict of the king went, there was joy and gladness among the Jews, with feasting and celebrating, and many people of other nationalities became Jews, because fear of the Jews had seized them. So the people of other nationalities became Jews in the general sense of one who identifies with, beliefs, rights, and customs of mosaic tradition. Consequently, after the exile, the term Jew 
was applied not only to those who were from the southern kingdom of Israel, but to Gentiles who were adherent to the religion of the, of the Judeans. Now in the New Testament time, the term Jews was used to describe Judeans as those who adhered to Mosaic tradition. Of course, it's not a term that these Judeans used to describe themselves since they preferred the term Israel. Israel. Now that the Judeans did not generally use the term Jew to address themselves, but Israel may be uh, gathered or may be seen by comparing the description of Jesus during his crucifixion. On the one hand, the Jews referred to him as the king of Israel. In Mark chapter 15, verses 31 and 32. Now hold on to Mark. Mark chapter, Mark chapter 15, verses 31 and 32. It is Mark chapter 15, verses 1 and 32. 31 and 32. In the same way, the chief priests and the teachers of the law mocked him among themselves. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. Let this Christ, King of Israel, come down from the cross, that we may see and believe. Those crucified with him also Hit insult on him. Now, uh, see, so they, these are the Jewish people. They describe him as the king of Israel. Now, on the other hand, though, the Roman soldiers refer to him as the king of the Jews. In St. Mark chapter 50, look at verses 17 and 18. Verses 17 and 18. So they put a purple robe on him, then twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on him and they began to call out to him hail king of the Jews so that's what outsiders describe the people uh, of Israel they are Jews but they don't describe themselves that way now that other uh, others, that others use the term Jews then, to refer to Judeans as those who were Adherent to Mosaic tradition, is evident in its use by the Samaritan woman that Jesus spoke uh, with regarding giving the issue of water. And this we learn from John chapter 4, verse 9. John chapter 4, verse 9. He reads, the Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For the Jews do not associate with the Samaritans. Now, Judeans in the New Testament use the term Jews to describe themselves when it is intended to differentiate themselves from the Gentiles. Thus Peter used the term Jews when he preached in Colonus' house 
as we can gather from Acts chapter 10, verse 28. Acts chapter 10, verse 28. It reads, He said to them, You are well aware that it is against our law for a Jew to associate with a Gentile or visit him, but God has shown me that I should not call any man impure or unclean. So, it is in the same sense that the Apostle Paul used it to rebuke Peter, and I'm not going to read it, but you can jot it down. That is in Galatians chapter 2, verse 4. Galatians chapter 2, verse 4. So, Apostle Paul, in this, when he used that word, uh, he also meant those who are in, involved in the mosaic tradition. But that's not really all. He also, when he, when he used the word, um, uh, the word Jews, implied that Jews, that a true Jew is not only one who is physically a descendant of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, but... I mean, as evident in the circumcision, but one that has actually become a believer in Christ. He introduces in Romans, his argument in Romans chapter 2, verses 28 and 29. Romans chapter 2, verses 28 through 29. It is, a man is not a Jew. If he is only one outwardly, now a circumcision merely outward and physical. No, a man is a Jew if he is one inwardly. And circumcision is circumcision of the heart by the spirit, not by the written code. Such a man's praise, uh, such a man's praise is not from men but from God. So in any case, the, the term Jew refers originally to those who were Judeans, but it extended to all those who were Hebrew people. Of course, today, Hebrew people are found in every nation in the world, although some of them do not even know that they are Hebrew people. Now, that's because of thousands and thousands of years of being in exile. However, current research uh, that the a group in uh, Funded in Israel, they've been do, doing this research of trying to discover some of the lost tribes. We know for, from their research now, we know for certain that the tribe of Gad has been traced to the Igbos in Nigeria, the Yinkling in Sweden, and among, all, among others. Now, the tribe of Dan has been traced to Sudan. Now, you notice the word Sudan. That remove that word that you see, it is people from Dan. Now some Levites have also been found in Lemba tribe of Ethiopia. Now other Hebrew people have been found in other parts of the world. Now this should not surprise anyone because of what Prophet Isaiah wrote in Isaiah chapter eleven, verse eleven. Well, just looking at the time, I think we'll read it after break. <laughs> 